0: Welcome to Apple Chat, a weekly podcast about the world of Apple. I'm your host, Leander Caney. I'm the editor and publisher of of CultOfMac.com, where we publish daily news, reviews, and how-tos. This week on Apple Chat, we talk with Ken Cosienda, a programmer who spent almost 15 years working at Apple. Ken helped develop the original iPhone, iPad, and Safari web browser. And now he's written a book about it called Creative Selection. Subtitled Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs, Ken's book takes us behind the scenes of Apple's software design process. It's a pretty remarkable book. It's a rare insider's guide, and the only book I know of that was written by a former Apple staffer that details how the magic gets done. It's the kind of account that only an insider could provide. It details Ken's career at Apple, starting with developing Safari, and moving on to the first iPhone. It provides a personal view on what made the Apple product culture special. In this episode, we talk with Ken about the importance of demos, how demos are at the heart of the creative selection process, and how they lead to such groundbreaking software. Ken also describes the nerve-wracking ordeal of presenting a demo personally to Steve Jobs, and how Jobs made weird eye and head movements when looking at new software. We talk about how Jobs prepped for his product keynotes, why autocorrect, makes it hard to type swear words on your iPhone, and why he wrote the book.
1: This week's Apple Chat is sponsored by the Cult of Mac Apple Watch Store. The online store is the best one-stop shop for all your Apple Watch needs. Curated by the Apple fanatics behind Cult of Mac, the store has a great selection of hand-picked bands, chargers, stands, and other accessories. The Apple Watch Store has a wide selection of great bands at a fraction of the prices that Apple charges. Everything in the store is hand-picked and reviewed before they are included. There's none of that cheap junk you find on Amazon or other outlets. Only the best Apple Watch accessories make the grade. Check out the store at store.cultofmac.com, that's store.cultofmac.com, and use the special code APPLECHAT, that's one word, APPLECHAT, to get a 10% discount.
0: Okay, hi, so we have, how do you pronounce your name, Ken? Ken Kashenda. Ken Kashenda from Apple. Well, formerly from Apple. Right. Ken has written a book called Creative Selection that's out on September 4th, uh, and it's about his 15 years at Apple as one of the um, designers of the iPhone, the original iPhone. And the book is a fascinating look at uh, the nuts and bolts of how Apple works.
2: Can you describe it to yourself? What exactly is the book about? Well, to me, the book is my personal view on the Apple product development culture, and it gives hopefully a sense of what it was like for me working as a software developer, designer and developer at the company around the time of the original iPhone, a few years before and a few years after. And what I've tried to do is to give people an inside look of how Apple worked, Mm -hmm. how products were made during the Steve Jobs era.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it fascinating to be honest, you know, like and a real eye opener because I don't think that there's a book like this. Has a book, you know, really delved
2: into the product development process at Apple? I don't think so. You know, it's one of the funny things that if we're going to just maybe look at the iPhone, well, how many people could really provide that insight? I mean, so, you know, I worked in software and the teams were very, very small. That was one of the surprising things, how few people were involved. Yeah. Yeah, one metric that you can use. Now, naturally, a product like the iPhone involved many different parts of Apple hardware and industrial design and marketing and legal and the whole company, right? But in the area where I was developing software, there were just a couple dozen people. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, one concrete measure of that is that the patent Apple filed lists only 25 inventors. And one of the names on the patent is Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's Steve Jobs et al. If you go to the uh, U.S. patent and trademark site. And yeah, my name is on that list uh, along with Steve and Scott Forstall and some other people. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, You joined Apple what time? In the summer of 2001. Okay, and this of course was just sort of Apple was kind of finding its feet again. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting time because June of two thousand one was three months after the release of Mac OS X, mm-hmm. and four months before the release of the first iPod, not iPhone, but iPod. iPod right, yeah. right, right. So it was a very interesting time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah Apple yeah. was just at the cusp of releasing that first product that. Well, wasn't a personal computer. Yeah, right. And it was transformative, wasn't it? Of course it was like, you know, it set all the
0: set 'em up to release products like the iPhone.
2: Yeah, it really did. Well, it was the answer, you know, Apple's answer to the questions like, Well, what comes after? PCs, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And of course, you know, the iPod from the beginning, you know, there was that way that Steve pitched it is that the Mac would be the digital hub, mm-hmm. right? So that, you know, you don't you're not going to be getting rid of your computer. It's going to be around for a long time, but then there're going to be these other products around it, digital cameras and camcorders, you know, at the time, and right your iPod as well. You know, what's funny is that then what happens, of course, is that the iPod paved the way to the iPhone, which Kind of subsumed all of these products. It is your video camera, right? right? It is your digital camera. It's, yeah. it's kind of like the digital hub, all in and of itself. Yeah, right. But that wouldn't have happened without the iPod, for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, 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 definitely. Yeah, it was a big learning curve, wasn't it? Of course, a lot of the things that went into the iPod and Mac OS 10 informed or laid the framework for the iPhone. And as you lay out in your book, I mean, you start talking about your first project at Apple, which was building Safari, the right. Safari web browser. Right. And that's a very instructive part of the book. It told me a lot about programming and programming process that I didn't know. I knew a little, you know, bits and pieces, but I found it really fascinating to read a really nice, clear layman's explanation of that. The most revealing thing, actually, to me was that you admit a couple of times that you are not mathematical.
2: <laughs> and I was like,
0: what? How can you be a programmer?
2: That was a real revelation. Well, the last time I studied math... Was in high school in the 11th grade. Never studied math in college at all. And when it comes to math, I have an intuitive feel for numbers and, and the way that they work, but don't ask me to correct your calculus homework.
0: Yeah, right. I know. I know. You, the you last time lost. I could help my
2: kids with the homework was like yeah. elementary school. Right. <laughs> and after that, they were telling me how to do it. Right. Well, you know, but it also goes to show that programming, at least the kind of programming that I did, has only a certain amount of math in it and that. What I focused on in my projects and in the work that I did was really the high level software, was the software that people who bought Apple products would interact with directly. And actually there's a whole host of people at Apple then and today who are working on lower levels of software. You know, are working on the kernel and the security frameworks and cryptography and all of that, you know, things that people interact with, but only indirectly. My role was a couple of levels above that, writing the apps, programming the animations, the user interfaces that people would go, the buttons that people would press mm-hmm. in the user interface.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I got in the impression you have a good spatial sort of mind, a mind for kind of imagistic terms, or in terms of like
2: the way that I would think about it is that I'm a generalist. In that, the opposite of that is that I don't have a specialty. You know, again, so many people you know at Apple do specialize. Certainly, the people who are writing the security software, that's what they do. They Mm -hmm. are experts and they devote their careers Mm -hmm. to keeping up on that very, very important area of technology. Whereas, you know, I and and the people that I worked with, you know, someday my manager came up to me and said, here, Ken, sign this paper. We can't tell you what it is, but if you sign it, we can. It's like, mm, uh, okay. And so I signed and they say, well, yeah, we're going to make a smartphone and we want you to be involved in it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a touchscreen operating system and nobody really knows what that is. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure it out. Right. And so people like me were the kinds of thinkers that Apple turned to when it came time to... Because they wanted someone who wasn't a specialist, I guess, yeah. right? You know,
0: someone who could figure out what exactly something that hadn't yet been invented might look like. Yeah. And of course, that's the bulk of the book is describing sort of that process. And, yep. and you talk a lot about the main project that you worked on, which was the keyboard. Right. And you spell out very well, I think, exactly why the keyboard was so important, because it was going to be the primary input method for this new device. And you were terrified the whole time right. that it might turn out like... Another Apple product. Do you want right, to talk
2: about that? Right, like the Newton. I don't know how well-remembered the Newton is no, now, if, I mean, right? Our audience will know. If if you know your audience yeah. will know. But, of course, that was a product that largely failed because you couldn't enter text into it. It had this handwriting recognition software. So you got the PDA, you held it in your hand, and you took the stylus, you know, wrote on the screen, and the software was supposed to, be able to decipher your handwriting and turn it into you know what you might say you know ascii text right that didn't work very well and people were frustrated really almost endlessly with the software's inability to do that really well and so the concern with the iPhone was that you know here we are again trying to introduce a new way of inputting text into what is essentially a new kind of device you know a touchscreen smartphone and are people going to fail at being able to type out their text messages and write their notes and type their texts? And the constant concern was, is the iPhone going to be another Newton? Mm-hmm. Uh- new product that fails because people can't enter text into it right and so this is what plagued me throughout that development process
0: yeah let's talk about the development process because you know the book clearly lays it out exactly all of the challenges and how you overcame them and it was really great to be able to step through that process yeah to see you know how you came up with the solutions to these problems as they occurred and of course we'll get to that afterwards as well you know why the book is called what it's called right what happened
2: with the keyboards it was an interesting reset wasn't it very early on right right well the explanation begins with the basic fact that there were so few people working on the project and so by the time that i joined there were only about six or eight people working on well what became ios and ui kit and so people wore many hats And so there were a couple very, very smart software engineers who were working on the keyboard. And so the way that we developed all of our software throughout that period was with uh, periodic demos. Mm -hmm. So people like Scott Forstall, who was the executive in charge of developing the touchscreen operating system, well, he and his key managers and the designers and the developers, again, there were very few of us. But Scott would go and lead kind of a tour of the hallway where all of the engineers and designers were sitting, and he would try out the software. He would sit down, and we would take the prototype software and even the prototype hardware with the prototype software running on it, and he would try it. In the case of a keyboard demo, he would try to type. Well, one day, not too long after I joined the iPhone development effort, which was late summer, early fall of 2005, well, there was a very, very challenging demo for the keyboard. Try as he might, Scott simply couldn't type really anything. He would try to, you know, thumb type a couple of letters and the software would either be confused and it wouldn't work and he would back up. I remember this very clearly. After trying that a couple times, he took the prototype hardware that we had and he turned it to like a 45 degree angle to his face and he took the index finger of his right hand and he tried to focus as much as he could on typing the s key to type the first letter of his name, Scott mm-hmm. well he couldn't mm-hmm. he simply couldn't again, the software was just very, very confused, and he called it into the demo and then what happened a couple of days after that, I guess there were some you know behind the scenes conversations i didn 't know about a couple of days after that, one of scott's managers, Henri Lamiro, who was leading the iOS development effort, called all of the engineers out into the hallway and said, okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. The people working on springboard and mail and calendar and Safari and notes and UI kit, just, just stop. <laughs> stop what you're doing. Everybody starting from now is a keyboard engineer. Mm-hmm. We need to figure this out because if we don't have a software keyboard, we don't have a product. Right. After that meeting broke up, I went back to my office and started thinking about keyboards. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. This led to like a couple of weeks later, a week later, two weeks later? Yeah, it was probably about three weeks or a month by the time we got around to. Okay. So now about 15 people, it was really incredible because really none of us had ever worked on touchscreen keyboards before. I mean, there was no such thing. Yeah. You know, after that meeting, everybody went back to their offices and they started trying to figure it out. And coming up with ideas of how can you take a little rectangle on this touchscreen keyboard, draw something on it in software with pixels that looks like you might be able to enter text with it and make demos. And there was quite a few wacky ideas, right? All kinds of different alternative keyboards. There were all kinds of things. You know, of course, we were all very excited about multi-touch. And so perhaps one of the most original ideas was one fellow made something that looked like a piano keyboard. (laughs) <laughs> with very very big keys you would try to type like you were playing notes in a tune mm-hmm. and sometimes you could even hit like little chords there's a history for these kinds of input devices you know in computing but none of them has really hit the mainstream but this was an idea hey maybe this is going to be the solution <laughs> that you use <laughs> these one and two and three finger gestures to type well it turns out that you know there's quite a learning curve mm-hmm. for them so we right. had other ideas things like morse code keyboards that you would tap short or tap long, you know, for dots and dashes kind of analog, or that you would tap for the short sort of Morse code, you know, the dot and swipe for the long. I mean, again, this repertoire of gestures to try to enter tests. So we had all kinds of ideas like that. And the one that I really wound up pursuing was making bigger keys with multiple letters on them and writing some software that would figure out what you meant. Okay. This was sort of the birth of order, correct, right? Uh, Yeah, it it really was. You know, and it kind of gets to this idea that the end results are never really come out exactly the same as your original ideas, that there is this evolution of ideas that you start with what maybe is not a very good idea, but at least that's a place to start. Right. And that then you can iterate from there and you can say, well, okay, well, this has some good qualities. And maybe some not so good qualities. Let's hold on to the good and get rid of the bad and figure out if there's a way that we can replace it with something better in such a way that now we have good and plus then the next generation of good. Evolve the software from there. Right. So of course,
0: well, this is sort of the heart of the book, isn't it? This process you call creative selection. Right. Which is what it's so fascinating because
2: why don't you describe it? Why don't you tell me about sure. it? Sure. Well, it's their realization that this way we worked creating demos. And then showing the demo to a colleague, maybe just poking your head around the office of the person who is just, you know, in the next office over, create this demo. And I would, you know, go and show it to this colleague. Hey, what do you think of this? Yeah, I like this. I don't like it. Okay. Well, great. And just then going and taking that feedback and figuring out, well, how do I respond to it? And then the next demo then is the result of that initial demo plus the feedback plus ideas and then how to address the feedback. At Apple, this was really formalized, is that there were many, many of these demos going on of colleagues showing each other ideas multiple times a day. But then what happened is that then there was like a demo pyramid built on top of that, is that then once every couple of days, managers would poke their heads in and say, hey, what's the latest thing that you have? What seems promising to you or what seems particularly unpromising to you? Maybe a problem that we need to focus some more brain power on. But then that proceeded up to then the executive level, once every week, Scott Forstall, at the time of the iPhone, he was the executive in charge. He would want to know, again, what's the most promising work? Let me see it. And then eventually up to Steve, where we would get these decisions about, yes, this is in the product. No, it isn't. And so it's this long process of demos and decisions and feedback that creates this long iterative progression mm-hmm. of demos and yeah. decisions and feedback and addressing it that leads you from not very promising ideas to products you can ship right i thought it was interesting you know that you didn't do brainstorming sessions like in 15 years at apple you said you attended what a couple of brainstorming sessions you at know most? We, we, we just didn't really you know it was like okay if you have an idea don't tell me about it make it go and make me a little demo yeah and so we got very very good at Going and whipping up these quick little software demos that illustrate the ideas that we had so that people could try it. Yeah. So I don't have to tell you what show, I mean. I show can not show tell you. Me. I right. can show you what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the way to, again, kind of generate this feedback, this concrete feedback that kicked off this whole creative selection process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's called creative selection because it's a Darwinian process. It's a Darwinian right. process. You know, as I was thinking about it, it really did ring true to me that, yes, this is evolution. It's evolving ideas. Taking these creative and technical projects and starting with something that is not very fit for its environment, (laughs) not fit for its task and trying to figure out how to make it more fit for its task. And, Mm -hmm. And of course, at Apple, we always had a very, very clear idea that we wanted the products to be wonderful for people in the real world that you didn't need to be a geek or a techie or devote your life to learning how a gadget worked. Mm-hmm. And well, there's a good example of that, right?
0: At well, the very beginning of the book, you know, you open the book with your first demo to Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And
2: of course, you're a little bit trepidatious, a little nervous. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, want to describe what I was like? Well, right. I mean, Steve was intimidating for someone like me for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, he had absolute power over the products. If you wanted to ship a feature, if you were responsible for a feature, as I was in many times in my career, for something like a user interface element, like this demo was about the keyboard for the first iPad. So how are we going to evolve the keyboard from the iPhone and make a version of that that would work on the iPad, given that the iPad has a bigger screen? And so I was responsible for coming up with ideas for that. In order to get that design approved well it's going to have to go through steve Mm -hmm. and so yeah it was nerve-wracking to Mm -hmm. show him work right because he was brutal (laughs) in his criticism right blunt yeah to the nth degree Mm -hmm. if he didn't like something you knew it one of your colleagues right refused to demo right right there was one fellow an extraordinarily talented fellow who just didn't like the way that Steve would give feedback just how, how brutal he could be. Yeah, just how brutal he could be. And, and well, this, this one turned out well though, right? So yeah, this demo turned out pretty well. In concrete
0: terms, you come up with this scheme where you could switch between two keyboards. Right. One with bigger keys, one with more keys, I guess. Right, right. right. And this is what you wanted to show him, this switching mechanism. Right. And one of your colleagues had made some nice animations. Yes. So that it really looked beautiful. And it was this switching
2: mechanism. But when he got his hands on it, he had a totally different reaction, right? Right. He was, Right. He right. said when we showed him these two designs, I mean just to be clear, you could switch keyboards without switching languages. Mm-hmm. So, staying in the same language, there were two English keyboards. So he saw these two versions we brought and this absolutely gorgeous animation that my colleague designed to switch between them. And despite this wonderful animation, he said, "We only need one of these," right? And he looked up from the demo his eyes, like, burned two holes <laughs> through, through me. Lasers, yeah. yeah, just they looked lasers at me. And so there I am. He says that you only need one of these, right? And my reaction was, uh, yeah, I guess so. I saw the light immediately. This was his opinion. But then he followed it up with another question right away. He asked me, which one do you think we should use? He asked me. Mm-hmm. And this shows, in a way, Steve's genius. He had the opinion that one keyboard was the way to go, but he wanted to get my opinion. I demoed for him, you know, once before that time, and he must have seen me around the hallways, but he, you know, he didn't really, really know who I was. He still wanted to know my opinion because he believed that I had been focused on this work. Mm -hmm. And so... I told him, I said, well, the one with bigger keys in the weeks leading up to it was working better for me. And that auto correction and the combination of kind of getting a little bit of a feel for touch typing, the combination of those two things was starting to work pretty well for me. And so I said that and he said, okay, we'll go with that. (laughs) I mean, it was really, it was as quick as that. I mean, he paused for just a moment Mm -hmm. and then that was it. And then the demo was over. Yeah. And And, And the decision was made, right? That was it. And that's what we shipped in the product. I have to say that that software then went into the whole prototype operating system and Steve would get versions of this installed on his demo devices. So I know that he must have tried it and he thought it was okay. Mm -hmm. And so if it hadn't been okay, we would have revisited. But since it was okay, Great. We've got tons of other decisions to make. Mm-hmm. And so it's this decisiveness
3: mm-hmm.
2: that was such you know, an important aspect of how we did the work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, see something, make a decision. And if that decision is good enough, Great. Right. Don't agonize. Yeah, yeah. Move
0: on. You were talking about, you know, comparing to Google, how they would A, B test, you know, 41 different shades of blue because no one there could make a decision. Right. They wanted to do it algorithmically. They wanted to, you know, get some data and let the data decide. Right. Apple was, it was antithetical to the way that you guys would work. Right. Because, like, let's
2: make a decision, make a decision quickly. (laughs) Right, right. And that Steve had faith in me that I was on this full-time, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And that I made this proposal and that the people who were in the demo room. There was just a handful of people in the demo room. They were all right with the decision. Steve saw it himself. He was all right with it. And so, yeah. yeah. And so we relied on our own taste and our yeah. own judgment. Mm-hmm. We had faith in ourselves that we could make the call. But another important point that you mentioned was that you were using these all day, every day. These That's devices. right. And so if there was a problem, it would surface. That's right. And this is, again, the key... Aspect of making the demos that this wasn't some paper prototype that we would pin up on a wall or look at on a table or whatever and say yeah well that looks good. It's like no, this was real software that you could try and you could live with every day, and so we we knew that it was good, that it was working, mm-hmm. and that if there were deficiencies then yeah we would find them in our everyday use and that did happen a lot didn't it that happened a whole lot even after these decisions came down there was this endless endless refinement a good example being the keyboard that you built right and that was what sure. 18 months of efforts, about a year of effort a year of solid effort on the keyboard itself
0: and it's surprisingly complex you know like it looks just like a keyboard and you think
2: oh yeah you know what's the big deal but
0: there's a lot going on in the background isn't it a right. lot
2: a lot there is a lot going on in the background yeah Keyboards, again, they look like kind of the QWERTY keyboard that you might have on your laptop, or even if you're as old as I am, that you can remember typewriters, manual typewriters, (laughs) electric typewriters. On those older devices, when you type the A, you get an A. That's it. You get what the key that you press. The keys don't change. (laughs) And yet, in order to make the small form factor, certainly on the original iPhone keyboard work, I had to come up with tricks. And so one of the things that happened behind the scenes, you know, other than autocorrection, which did have a visible manifestation, you could see that working. But one of the things that happened behind the scenes is that the keys change shape. Mm-hmm. Not their visual shape that you would see as a user, but behind the scenes, the shape of the keys that the software saw. Well, the keys would change shape. So if you were so it larger,
0: right For, the, the for example, if around.
2: you type the letters "space" and then "th, well the letter "E," the active area for the, the, the "E tiny, key. Yeah for that would be would be huge, yeah, because yeah. "the" is the most popular word in the English language. Typing "the," typing that "e for "the," was easy. So you could go quickly and you would get the sense that, "Hey, I'm pretty good at this." Right. That my targeting is, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty accurate here, but it's like the software was helping you to be accurate because it's like one of the things that I noticed in all of my tests and with all of the feedback that I got is that those key pop ups, the little animation that happened when you press the key. That was the way of the software telling you that it was listening. Kind of like, you know, in conversation, when somebody else is talking to us, we do the uh aha and yep and mm mm-hmm and right, We, we follow along, we give this sense to the speaker that we're listening and understanding. And so the key pop-ups play this role that the software is telling you that it's listening. And so enlarging those key targets and making the right key pop-up was this way to build confidence mm-hmm. that the software was listening and understanding not only to your taps, but getting a sense of what you wanted to type. Yeah, right. I was surprised at the complexity of you know the autocorrect
0: algorithm too. Hmm. There was a few other tricks as well, right? To feed the algorithm the correct data, you were looking at
2: trying to predict word frequency sure you came up with this kind of elaborate mapping mechanism right when you're typing it's likely that you are going to type the most common words in the language there is something called ziff's law which you know maybe some of your more technical listeners might be interested in looking up zi uh, pf ziff's law which is is actually a law that says well the most popular word in the language is twice as likely to come up as the second most popular word which is twice as likely to come up as the fourth most popular word, which is twice as likely to come up as the eighth most popular word, and so on. And so there's this heavy weighting that you're going to type the most popular words in the language. And so I did a study and built into the autocorrection dictionary knowledge of the frequency of all the words in the language so that it would be more helpful, the software would be more helpful if you were going to type more common words. Mm -hmm. And so balancing out that Word usage value, that usage frequency value against the kinds of mistakes that you were likely to make. You know, an example of this is that O and I are right next to each other on the keyboard. And so there are so many words that you might mean that your targeting would be often I mean, the most obvious one is of and if, mm-hmm. right? But there are many, many words that just that vowel difference might be the difference between getting the word you want and not. And so always keeping track of the kinds of errors that people made, the kinds of misses that they might have made in their targeting, balancing that against the usage frequency value. Yes. So this is what the autocorrection algorithm was doing behind the yeah, scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But of course, as, he, as it got better and
2: better, then he discovered there were, well, there was
0: actually quite a few edge cases where people did mean to type something right. different. Accounting for that was,
2: was tricky too. Right. And so, you know, it turns out that the software could be made very powerful that no matter what progression of gibberish letters you typed, the software could figure (laughs) out something. Well, what is the geometrically closest word in the dictionary to this gibberish letters? And it could actually suggest that as an Mm autocorrection. Over time, I discovered that, well, this wasn't very useful. And where this has a practical application is that sometimes you want to type a word that isn't in the language. And so an example of that is, you know, picture that, well, you are going to text somebody and you say, well, let's go out for dinner tonight. And then, you know, afterward, I really want a, a dessert to celebrate that it's Friday. And so we could either go to that ice cream parlor, or we could go to that terrific bakery right next to it. And Well, how would you type that word or? And you really wanted to, Emphasize the word. Emphasize that. So you might type O-O-O-O-R-R-R-R. We can can go to the ice cream or chocolate cake. Well, the software doesn't understand what you're saying. And so if the autocorrection algorithm were to intervene and say, oh, well, let me go and try to find what word is closest to that O-O-O-R-R-R. Well, it turns out that there's a dictionary word, polite, that if you just look at the keyboard and, you know, you could see that, well, that's the word that is closest to it in the dictionary. Well, that's unhelpful. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the software had to be kind of given this feeling of when to back off, how much intervention is too much.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, one of the earliest frustrations of the keyboard is when people were trying to express themselves with a certain four-letter word mm. that began with the letter F, and they ended up with a four-letter word beginning with D. Right. This is the origin of that, right? It's, uh, yes. You didn't want the algorithm to order correct swear
2: words or hate right. speech. Right. Right. Okay. So there's a couple of different levels to this. Of course, the first version of the iPhone shipped only in the United States, but we knew following on very soon that we wanted to make this a product for the world and some countries have laws that certain words are hate speech you know in germany you can't say some you know nazi words or you can't ship a product that is going to provide active assistance (laughs) right hate speech for typing hate speech and so we found that we needed to add these words we actually needed to do research and add these forbidden words to the dictionary how many other of them Oh, gosh, there there it is. Initially, dozens, dozens of words to cover all of this. And these are forbidden words. These are forbidden words. So the software would actually recognize yes, the most likely thing that you mean to type is this hate speech. But then there was a mark in the autocorrection dictionary to never offer that word as an autocorrection. So Mm -hmm. it knew that that might be what you were trying to type. Right. But then. The case that we would see a lot in English is that, yes, it would take your F word and turn it into a D word. <laughs> you know, and I think that's actually even gone, you know, in different software versions over time in iOS, you know, the many versions that the power of that decision has, you know, uh, uh, oh, the really? strength has has <laughs> increased and decreased over time. Over time yeah. yeah. Funny.
0: Yeah, because the funny thing is that people would have adding that word to their own custom dictionary. Sure, right, in the, sure. In you know, e- eventually yeah, there's features to enable people to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I found all that stuff uh, really fascinating. You do a great job, I think, of laying out all of the progress of this. Because, you know, like, it wasn't clear, was it, at the beginning? It took you, you guys, the development team, a little bit of a circuitous route to come up with, well, you know, a quoted keyboard. Right. And a quoted keyboard that types one key per
2: touch. Right. It wasn't obvious at the beginning at all that that's where you would end up. Right. No, funny. not at all. I mean, the goal was an efficient text entry system. It was wide open, right? You could do It whatever. was absolutely wide open. I mean, it, going back to these other ideas, is it piano keyboards, Morse keyboards, gestural keyboards, multi-touch keyboards, whatever. We just needed, we wanted something that would be wonderful, mm-hmm. that would be worthy of inclusion in an Apple product. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of really great details as well. Uh, well, you know, one of the things we mentioned earlier was like that you guys were all sitting in a corridor, right outside of Scott Forstall's office. Yeah. Why was that? Well, it's this closeness, this proximity, really, really mattered. Um, and there weren't enough offices to jam everyone in. Where Scott Forstall's office was, it just so happens that right outside that there was a a hallway with single person offices. There was about twenty of them, and so. That hallway is where all the software engineers went. And then if you just went out his door and, you know, down a short corridor, and then there was another area where all the human interface designers, so where the people who did the animations and the icons and a lot of the concepts. And it's really interesting, too, the name of that team, Human Interface. You know, we didn't call it software design, which is, you know, maybe more kind of pedestrian name for the team. These are the people who were really focused on the humans mm-hmm. In some ways we on the you know engineering hall were focused on the computer and the software and they were focused on the design and the humans and we worked very, very closely together and this proximity really really mattered. We mm-hmm. needed to be in and out of each other's offices all the time to right. make this kind of demo-based collaboration that I described earlier work
0: yeah yeah yeah,
2: yeah. right. And that, of course, included Baz Oding and Imran Chowdhury. Right, and, um, right, yes. Ended yes. up by Greg Christie. Yes, those people were fundamental, instrumental to how this product turned out. Mm-hmm. Their ideas, their taste, their empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, you know, a way to describe this is that Greg Christie had a term, a pejorative term, that if, say, someone like me walked up to him and showed him a demo, if he didn't like it because it was maybe too geeky, there was a word he had to describe it. He said it was computery. But if I have a uh, you know computer company, that's right, and that was bad. Yeah, (laughs) Ken, this is too computery. We didn't want that. We wanted something that would be intuitive. The technology needed to melt away. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the new class of product, and the iPod sort of set Apple in this direction of making this personal technology, Mm -hmm. and the iPhone was the follow-on. Is Mm -hmm. that we didn't want to make it seem like a computer even though there's a tremendous amount of technology in the product. We yeah. wanted to make it friendlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The whole company's is with that sort of
0: ambition, right? that, that, that,
2: that ethos. Yeah. The merging of technology and the liberal arts, taking the best of hardware and software, but then also the best of design and culture, and really yeah, merging them, is, merging yeah. them. You take them, and it's just not a mixture. It really is compound. It becomes inseparable Mm -hmm. the two threads really do bind together
1: this week's apple chat is sponsored by the cult of mac apple watch store the online store is the best one-stop shop for all your apple watch needs curated by the apple fanatics behind cult of mac the store has a great selection of hand-picked bands chargers stands, and other accessories. The Apple Watch Store has a wide selection of great bands at a fraction of the prices that Apple charges. Everything in the store is hand-picked and reviewed before they are included. There's none of that cheap junk you find on Amazon or other outlets. Only the best Apple Watch accessories make the grade. Check out the store at store.cultofmac.com. That's store.cultofmac.com and use a special code AppleChat. That's one word, AppleChat, to get a 10% discount.
0: You said there wasn't a lot of drama. Some previous accounts, I think, have sort of played up the fact. There was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of things going wrong. And, you know, Steve Jobs is breathing down people's necks. But your account made it seem, you know, it was a lot calmer, very rational. And and people like Scott Forstall came across, he came across as like a really good manager, it seemed to me. Oh, I... I, He's been really sort of had a bad time in the press, I think, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, I can speak to my personal experience. I loved working with Scott. He gave me the most amazing opportunities to work on the products that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. He personally gave me these chances. Mm-hmm. And so you know I have nothing but gratitude for that. But then also on a day-to-day basis, he, he built these teams. Mm-hmm. He chose the people and he built the culture and set it in motion and created the examples that we all tried to follow in our daily work. is not the right word, but he was feeding the best ideas up to Steve too. Right, itself. well, you know, I think gatekeeper is an excellent word, to be honest. I mean, it really, really does describe In that we had a term in Apple, directly responsible individual. DRI. DRI, right? And so Scott was the DRI for, well, what became iOS, you know, back then, you know, the iPhone software. And so he was the DRI for iOS. He was responsible. And so when Steve was interested in seeing the latest work, he turned to Scott. He says, okay, what's new? Mm -hmm. And Scott needed to decide. You know, of course, Steve was very involved. How many demos would Steve see? One or two a week? Uh, Usually it was on Mondays. And certainly when he was healthy, it was once a week. Mm -hmm. Once a week. And he would see see the latest work, you know, the latest version of the keyboard, the latest version of the springboard, the latest version of... That's right. And that's right. So there would be these rolling demos. And so he would see work once a week, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he would see everything once a week. I mean, sometimes feedback would be gosh, boy, none of this is working. I'm going to need some fresh ideas here. And that might take three weeks or a month. And then he would only see it when the next version was ready. But you know, another really important aspect of this is that when work was shown to Steve, it was usually pretty polished. In other words, we wanted to show him something that we believed might actually be ready to put into a product. Yeah, he wasn't saying that, you know, all the early demos, or the earliest ideas. There would be modes, right? I mean, certainly very, very early on, he would need to be aware that, you know, look, this is not shippable quality yet. But still, you know, the standard got to be that, well, you don't want to tell Steve how it's going to work and then show him something that's different than that. I mean, the ideal demo would be, you would simply describe what it is that you're looking at, like in the case of, say, that iPad demo that I mentioned before, is that you'd set an iPad down in front of him and you say, okay, Steve, we're looking at iPad keyboards. And then that was it. Then you would wake the device and, you know, land him in notes and he would try it out. And hopefully you wouldn't need to describe really anything beyond what is there on the screen. Right. And part of the idea of that was this. Steve was customer number one. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the stores, people are going to wander into an Apple store and they're going to look at a product and they're going to see, well, hey, does this product look like it suits me? Again, preparing for that kind of yes, no, up, down, buy, don't buy decision was something that, again, we had rehearsals for. These Steve demos would dress rehearsals for that. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, there was actually a funny um, thing that I never heard before in that
0: opening chat so when he shows Steve the, the iPad keyboard. He had a funny way of looking at it, right? Can you
2: describe that? He had a very slow, very deliberate way of looking at the software that it put that in front of him. So to picture, you know, he's seated in an office chair, just a generic office table in front of him. So the iPad was sitting down in front of it. And at first he didn't even touch the iPad. Instead, he looked down at it, stared at it straight on. And then he started to move his head around. I mean, like in little figure eights. You know, what I just took that to be is that he wanted to look at it straight on. But then also in his peripheral vision, it's like, how does this look if I were going to be maybe interrupted and somebody asks me a question and then I, do you want to get a cup of coffee? Yeah, I'll be with you in five minutes. And then you turn your head back to the product. What's that experience like? And it's like, now I need to refocus. What's that refocusing experience like? And so it was just fascinating. And he'd take like 30 seconds to look at the software before he even touched the screen. Fascinating. Well, you're there sweating, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm saying they're sweating <laughs> because while it's it's quiet, And the other funny detail about that story is it was a conference room near to his office. Well, actually, no, it wasn't actually close to his office. So now this was on the Infinite Loop campus in Cupertino. And so Steve's office was in building one. And so the Infinite Loop, if you've never been there, is, as the name implies, it's a loop of six buildings all connected. And so the software building where we did the work on iOS and the iPhone was in building two. Mm -hmm. So he would walk over. Okay. Just a short walk, buildings one and two were connected, and there was a special conference room that was set aside just for Steve's demos. It was used very infrequently for other things. It was really about 90% of the time set aside for Steve demos. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's where he saw it And it's windowless. Life. And it was windowless. And it was really even charmless. I mean, you wouldn't think. <laughs> a ratty old couch. and A ratty old couch. And there was like this forlorn old beanbag chair in the corner <laughs> that really like nobody ever sat on. And, you know, and the funny thing, I mentioned these office tables where this iPad demo was laid out. These weren't even the light colored wood that you see. In, you think it'd be like an Apple store? Like an you? Apple store. You, you'd yeah. think it would be set up just like an Apple store, but it wasn't. <laughs> Mangy old couch, generic office chair, formica colored, general issue office furniture. And that was it. That was his demo room. Astonishing that that's what he chose for himself. Or maybe he just didn't really even. Paid pay, it no mind. Paid it, it right. no yeah. mind. He was focused on the software and the products and not on the decor. One interesting story that you tell is about his
0: keynote preparation. And this is the complete opposite. You know, this is something he very much definitely did
2: pay mind to. Yeah. Of course, we all know that he was this amazing presenter. And that when he got up on stage, he seemed like he was talking like it was like nobody did these long presentations. He seemed very natural. Off Off the cuff. Off the cuff, right. Well, no, this was the end result of a long effort. He would start about a month ahead of time on campus, and he had a direct role in creating the slides that wound up being shown on stage. He would edit them. And I actually had the privilege one time of being in the rehearsal, the late stage rehearsals. It was actually for the uh, keynote that announced the first version of Safari. And so I was one of them just a couple dozen people that was invited up to the Moscone Center in San Francisco where the keynote would be taking place the weekend before. And yeah, he you, could do two full dress rehearsals. He, he on did two full dress rehearsals, each on Saturday and on Sunday. So it was actually four full four, dress yeah. full dress rehearsals. This is, and this is after like almost a month of almost daily work on That's this. almost daily work. He would go and With just a small group of people, you know, people like Scott Forstall and Phil Schiller would be invited. A lot of times in town hall on the Apple campus, if you've ever visited the campus in Cupertino, the auditorium on campus there, he would rehearse again and again and again and again, going through the presentation and just trying to make sure that everything ran right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And he'd have it down, you know. He would just have it down cold. Yeah. And so when it came time to stepping through these slides, if you've ever given one of these big on-stage presentations, there are these screens facing you. So you can face out toward the audience and you can look down and you can see the slide that you're on and the slide that comes next. Well, I was, you know, it's got the feeling. It's like, you know, go back and look at the video, see if he's cheating. He's looking down to see what slide comes next. It's like by that time, he didn't even need to cheat. He knew Mm -hmm. what slide would come next and how he wanted to transition to take the message from this slide into the next. And this was just a result of long, long, just assiduous rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, just practice. One of the things I noticed after watching a lot of his
0: keynotes, one of the things that struck me was that he would explain his thinking or Apple's thinking behind a new product and at the time of the keynote, it wouldn't necessarily be crystal clear. He was actually quite frank, I think, about why Apple did what they did. And in your example, when you talk about Safari, you know, he talks about how it's the fastest browser. And this, of course, was his guidance, his goal for the browser at the very, very beginning. And that's what right. guided your whole development. That was 18 months, is that right? Uh, the, uh,
2: Safari, Safari was just about 18 months, yeah, from the day we started on it until Steve was up on stage announcing it, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it's funny, it's like, you know, How he talked about it at the keynote actually gives you sort of the backstory. But if you're on the outside looking in, you don't necessarily get that, I don't think. I think that was one of the nice things your book sort of opened my eyes to, was the fact that he was sort of telling you the story. But you wouldn't necessarily grasp it until
2: you read something like your book, which spells it out. Right. In some ways, it's the punchline without the... Joke. <laughs> yeah. Right. Without the buildup to the joke. Yeah. I mean, he said, you know, on that day, so, you know, Apple built a new browser and, you know, and why did we do this? Speed. You know, in kind of Steve's style, and you know, he'd have this slide with one word on it. You didn't know that that drove our whole development effort. And it was 18 months of trying to figure out how to take this open source browser engine and make it run fast on the Mac that drove our daily efforts. And then, yeah, Steve just comes out on stage in you know, in typical fashion, says, one word, speed. And that's the story of the development. Mm-hmm. It was one of the inspirations for me writing the book. Is like, wait a minute, I can tell this story that underlies this single word and yeah. this product that a lot of, you know, a lot of Mac users and, you know, and iPhone users use every day. And, yeah, yeah. and you know, how did it start? Yeah. When Steve said something, yeah, he chose his words very carefully. In some ways, he was a great marketer he was like a very efficient marketer. It's like, you know, the message actually had meaning
3: Mm -hmm. behind
2: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honest marketer. That's what I think I was trying to get to uh, the point. He had a reputation for being
0: secretive and when it came to revealing it, he would sort of tell the story behind it or the thinking behind it, which
2: I found wasn't always apparent until you read the more detailed backstory. Right. There's a reason behind it too, is that from the beginning, it's like, why speed? Why browser speed? Well, he foresaw that when we released Safari, we were going to be replacing an existing product. So people had Mac OS X, and they had Microsoft Internet Explorer, and the goal was to replace it. Here's this product that is now something that is new, and we want you to use this one instead of that one. And so he wanted to give people a really good reason for doing that. And so he figured, well, if it's really fast, people won't mind. Even if it's a little different, if maybe they need to relearn a keyboard shortcut, you know, power users, maybe need to relearn a keyboard shortcut or even just regular, you know, casual users are going to need to relearn where the back button is or whatever, that, well, yeah, there's a reason to do it. It's like, wow, this browser is so much faster and that's what they're going to be thinking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, he thought that. And so then he drove us to make sure that we made that happen. Can I ask you, you know, why he wrote the book? Yeah, well, you know, this topic that we were, Talking about really gets at it is that I decided for reasons maybe we'll get into a little bit later that it was time for me to move on from Apple. And in a sense, I wanted to understand, to give some thought. Is that what did this all mean? I think that the products that we made over the time that I worked at Apple came out really well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say one of those four letter words there, but yeah. yeah, I mean, very impactful.
0: And so, why did those products turn out well? What did we do? Well, because you also compare and contrast, don't you? You experienced in a previous company that sure that seemed consequential, but failed. Yeah. You compare and contrast the way that you worked there and the way that you worked at Apple and why, right,
2: right. was more successful than the other. And so I started to think about, well, what if I distill down what we did? I mean, you know, what we did, if you just looked at it at a certain level, it's just office work, you know, at a high tech company, there are engineers who are in their offices staring at computer screens, typing code. There are designers. In Photoshop, coming up with graphics, we go to lunch, we talk about what we do, and it's just like at that level, it doesn't explain anything. You know, so I tried to think down, it's like, well, what underlies that work? What explains what we did? And so I actually came up with these seven essential elements: inspiration, collaboration, craft, diligence, decisiveness, taste, and empathy. And like thinking about those seven elements as Well, gosh, you know, this iPad keyboard demo that I gave for Steve. Well, how did that turn out as well as it did? Well, it was decisive. Steve's taste figured into it as well. And there was craft. We came up with a demo that he liked. And so it's this combination of these factors. Right. I just tried to think about many other things that happened, you know, during my career. And, you know, over the course of these products that we've been talking about, And those elements seem to make sense. And so I started to think, well, you know, what if I tell the stories to provide the context where I can then give these explanations of why? And so that's why I wrote the book. Right. Plus, you know, like you said, the heart of it being that this iterative demo process where you're
0: showing, not telling, you're getting feedback, Mm -hmm. and then the next demo is better than the one previously until
2: you end up with something that is shippable. Yeah. So when did you leave Apple? I left a little bit more than a year ago, not quite a year and a half. You know, I think what you're trying to get at is why I might have done that. You know, there's an aspect of that that's, it's it's kind of emotional. Working at Apple is kind of like a marriage. It's kind of almost like a second marriage. I have a wonderful marriage to my wife. And, you know, once you work at a company and invested myself emotionally for 15 years, you know, thinking about leaving, it feels like a divorce. I'm not really sure that at this point I'm really ready to you know, necessarily talk about it yet. I think that in the same way that I let some years go by and give some distance for the things that I wrote about in my book, I think I want to give you know, the last couple of years at Apple the same opportunity and let there be a little bit of distance. What I can say is that over my years at Apple, I was fortunate enough to work on some pretty wonderful projects. Safari and WebKit from the very beginning, and then the iPhone, and then the iPad, and then the Apple Watch. First versions for all of those things, and I'm very proud of how those projects came out. You know, I began to ask myself, "Is like, well, is this all there is? Is it just going to be the next product? You know, but then it was also a question is, like, well, do I just do the next version of iOS? You know, what I decided was that I really am this kind of zero to one person. Begin with, you know, an idea, something that doesn't exist, and work on the project to make it real. And I'd already done that at Apple a few times. And so I decided that it was time for me to maybe look at doing that in some other way. Mm-hmm. And so I left Apple and within a couple of weeks, I had this book contract. It's like, okay, and now I'm going to make this book. I don't have a book. <laughs> gonna make and, now, and now I'm going to try to apply some of the lessons that I learned at Apple some of the creative lessons, the product creation lessons, and I approached writing the book like creating an Apple product. And it seemed fresh and new, because it was a brand new field I don't think would have been possible mm-hmm. if I had just, you know, continued on at Apple, you know, on the trajectory that I was. And and I could have gone on, but I'd simply just chose not to.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the questions I think some people will be asking is, the book covers the sort of golden age of Apple design when Steve Jobs was around. Of course, now Steve's it has been six, seven years. Do you think the same
2: process is in place at Apple today? And I think there's a couple ways to answer that. One is that there is a very strong cultural momentum at Apple that goes back a long way. I think that the spirit of even the Macintosh lives on at Apple. The way that, say, the Mac brought together like beautiful, you know, proportional fonts, you know, that way of, you know, merging design with technology to create something new for people, that goes on. I'd like to think that in some ways, you know, a little bit of my influence goes on at Apple, even though I'm not there every day anymore, because the people that I worked with, some of them are still there. And so it's a very difficult question, you know, to think about, well, what happens when someone like Steve Jobs leaves the scene? Right. Well, he's obviously irreplaceable. The Apple of today is doing the best it can. And, you know, it did just become a trillion-dollar company before anybody else. Right, yeah. And so... The question is about, the, you know, the next zero to one, that you know, the, the new
0: products conjured out of thin uh, you know, right is Apple able to do that without Steve? I mean, how critical was he in that? Because he talked about the pyramid of demos and how he sure. was at the pinnacle of the pyramid being the ultimate, you know, customer number one, the ultimate editor. Does it grind to a halt without someone in that role? See, I, I don't know. What about the Apple Watch? I mean, because that was, wasn't that the first product that was conceived without Steve's input sure. in any
2: form? I think that Steve sort of knew about the watch, but certainly how the product turned out all happened after he died. So, yeah I think it's an example of what kinds of products you know Apple is capable of baking after Steve departed. You know the product turned out pretty well, I think
0: yeah, yeah, me too. I think people were dismissive of it at first, but I think it was like a lot of apple products It's taken like, two or three generations to really sort of mature into something that has
2: mainstream appeal, and I think it will continue to do so, you know like- well, you know there's also this promise in the product that's going to help us. Monitor our health. Yeah, right. You know, just even if it can gather some raw material about our blood sugar levels or our our heartbeat over the course of a day, and then you just aggregate this data from millions of people around the world and it's just that. Like, then what are doctors going to be able to do with that well right. i don't know but gosh boy having that data the potential for that is maybe truly life changing and life saving for right. people absolutely right? yeah.
0: yeah yeah totally yeah, yeah i mean if it fulfills that promise of being able to you know save your life right then i think it could become even bigger than the iphone right it could become right. even more universal because
2: you know so you talk about it's like you know what is the product today and you know i, I think the best products writ large, but then also the best products that Apple have made are open-ended like that. They have potential to become things that you couldn't really even conceive when the people who were making it were making it. Mm -hmm. I think that's certainly true of the iPhone, right? We didn't know that apps were going to be it, Mm -hmm. but we discovered it very, very quickly after we made the product. It became obvious to everybody that apps was something that we were going to do. Now, again, we didn't know that at the start. And so, you know, again, it's this evolutionary process that I think the best products have that potential to do with. Right, for sure, for sure. Okay, Ken, well, we better wrap it up there. Okay.
0: (laughs) I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And uh, I really enjoyed your book. I highly recommend it. And I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That's all we have time for this week. I'd like to thank Ken Kosciender, author of Creative Selection, inside Apple's design process during the golden age of Steve Jobs. Ken's book goes on sale on September the 4th. It can be ordered at booksellers everywhere. Find out more at creativeselection.io. That's creativeselection, one word.io. While you're online, you should also check out cultofmac.com. We have a couple of posts about Ken and his book, including a review and some of the things we learned about Apple and Steve Jobs. That was Apple Chat, a weekly podcast about the world of Apple. I know it's been a while, but new episodes come out every week. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And if you like the show, please leave a review or a rating. And please also check out CultOfMac.com and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, we're at CultOfMac. And Facebook is Facebook.com slash CultOfMac. Thanks a lot. See you next time.